Coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, also the land of the Lenny Lenape people, I am Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations that we normally have on the front lines. Only this time, we have microphones in our faces and you are listening in. And this month, we welcome three leaders in the faith-rooted justice movement to talk with us about something that might feel unsexy, but is critical to the flourishing of our world. We want to talk about how the funding process for nonprofits must transform as leaders of color rise and guide the justice agenda. So we welcome Reverend Dr. Alexia Salvatierra, Academic Dean of Central Latino, part of Fuller Seminary, Mickey Scape Jones, the Justice Doula, and Nikki Toyama Sito, Executive Director, Christians for Social Action. I've asked these three fabulous women to talk with us on Freedom Road about how we fund color in our transforming world. So please tweet to us. Please continue to share the the podcast with your friends. Tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us. And keep sharing it with your friends and and your networks and letting us know what you think. So here's the deal, y'all. One of the goals of transformational community development is to develop the capacity of leaders from within the impacted communities so that they rise and lead the processes of transformation within their communities. The leaders of color that we're speaking with today have each risen within the ranks of faith-based nonprofit institutions and are now leading change on a national and global scale. They have witnessed the disparities and the disconnects between the needs of leaders of color and current philanthropic assumptions, structures, and systems. As the demography of our nation shifts further and more faith-rooted leaders of color rise, the incapacity of our current systems to fund effective change will become more pronounced. We need to talk about this now. So my first question to all of you is this. What was your first experience of the great disconnect between our current funding norms and assumptions and the needs of leaders of color? I'm going to turn this first to Alexia and ask, Alexia, would you share with us? What's your first experience? I was actually thinking maybe not about my first experience, but an experience that was really revelatory. Mm -hmm. So about... Um, 15 years ago, I was part of a national consultation that was led by a number of foundations in New York. It was held at the Ford Foundation. The funding exchange was a big part of it. And I was on the community funding board for Liberty Hill at the time, which is, was a member of the funding exchange in the Los Angeles area. And so we were talking about how you measure social change. That was the purpose of the consultation. Mm. And I remember that the group decided after much conversation, lots of people of color in that group, that there were two measures that were equally important and intention. And one of them was the measurement that all the foundations were looking for, which was the measure of an objective win in the area of social justice and the measure of a change of power structure. So did you set up a monitoring committee to ensure that the legislation was implemented. So that would be an example. Mm -hmm. The other measurement was leadership development, and particularly the leadership development of new leaders, of leaders who are most affected, right? Mm -hmm. And what the group was very clear about was that if you needed to win fast, you know, within the time frame of the grant, (laughs) that you couldn't put forward inexperienced leaders because they were less likely to succeed. Mm-hmm. Or at least that was the fear that they would be less, less likely to succeed. Mm-hmm. So what struck me at that moment, it was, you know, a lightning moment, was I realized that the, a lot of the work that we do as faith leaders of color is about that deeper leadership development. 
mm-hmm. in contexts where people have internalized the societal message that they are not enough and that and those are very powerful negative programming lines that go down, right? So that people don't step forward. And then that there's no hope for change and you can't trust institutions, that those come from experiences. And so doing the deep work to help people become leaders Hmm. is longer, takes longer. Mm -hmm. And so the temptation, if you want to keep getting funding, is not to do it, but it's the work we do. And then I would want to, and it's essential work. I mean, everyone in that coalition recognized it as essential work, but they didn't completely recognize what would have to happen in order to fund that work. And wow. I think the last thing I would say about that is the other dynamic about the way my community at least functions is that we function much more collectively. So there's a real shame to bragging about yourself as an individual, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but our system is really used to bragging about ourselves as individuals <laughs> yes. and asking for that and expecting that. Wow. So not only does the work take longer and it's more subtle and it's harder to measure in the process, benchmarks are harder to measure, but also the people that are doing that don't have time, do not have the natural inclination to promote themselves, mm-hmm. have barriers against that, and do not have the time and energy to be sitting in the meetings where people would get to know them. They're out there doing the work. Hmm. So they don't get discovered and they don't get seen. Wow. Thank you so much. I hear you resonating, Nikki. Uh, would you share with us? What are you thinking? Yeah, absolutely. I think two snapshots come to mind mm-hmm. that revealed the disconnect for me. Mm-hmm. There was a season in my life that I was a major donor officer for a large organization. And in the process of my meeting with some of the historic partners for this organization, and you know, I was kind of being apprenticed in under a, another guy, a, a white man of a different generation. I remember sitting at those tables and to hear how the really, people would just say, oh, you know, donors and funding and generosity. It's all about relationship. It's all about relationship. And it's like, I'm a friendly person, you know, relationships, no problem. But then as I found the ways that folks were really defining relationships were about having gone to the same church camp, having grown up or having been a part of these sort of same organizations and these sort of, and it it just opened my eyes to these whole ponds of ways that people in relationships organize themselves. Things that I, as a, a woman and as a person of color, and as a person of a different generation, had no access to. So that's like one, one snapshot. As I sat and I thought, oh, I'm not going to be the person who's going to go golfing with these folks. You know, I didn't right. go to that Christian church camp when I was growing up because I wasn't right. born yet. You know, like I was just noticing, right, these different things. So that's yeah. one snapshot. And then the other snapshot is I was a part mm-hmm. of a gathering about 10 years ago where uh, a couple of donors uh, from the Asian American Christian community had gathered because they realized that a lot of organizations and institutions had no idea of the work or the people doing the work of Asian American descent in kind of this Christian faith space. They were Mm -hmm. like, oh, we just don't know. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, I know tons of people who are doing amazing things. So this particular philanthropist was trying to gather the community together. I didn't realize that the invisibility that our community had in general society was mm. also really prevalent, if even not more, a little bit more exaggerated. And so recognizing how much these different networks really mediate so much of the process or, or shape. And so what does it look like, you know, for folks to have wider access? Because I just thought, oh, some of these folks are so close to the ground doing fantastic stuff. These are the folks people need to know. How about you, Mickey? Yeah, you know, my work is largely supporting activists, clergy, change makers to, you know, lead in sustainable ways and to figure out how to stay in this work long term. And, you know, one of the ways that I do that is pilgrimage. And I know, you know, Lisa, you and I have worked together on that. And so I've, you know, traveled to different places. And one of the things about pilgrimage is sometimes you realize things that you kind of miss in your own environment, right? Because you're Mm. so used to swimming in your own water all the time. And I was in Rwanda many years back and, you know, learning about kind of money and how funding worked with Americans and Hmm. Rwandese people. It was, you know, I was completely a fish out of water, right? It was my first trip to the continent. And I was working with a group, with a church, actually a denomination-wide group of folks who were trying to do some maternal fetal health stuff, right? Because that was actually 
what I used to do before I was the justice duel, I was the bird duelist. So what I came to understand in understanding and actually not understanding so much about how funding was working there is, you know, it's it, we start to see the hustle, right? Mm-hmm. Of mm-hmm. Poor church folks trying to do the work in Rwanda. And what I came to understand is we do the same hustle in the U.S. Wherever, you know, wherever people are that are trying to do work that is then funded by funders, it's like, we know we have to kind of sometimes bend to the will of the funder or we have to get everything we can get because that funding might dry up. That might be the last time they come visit us or, you know, you have to figure out how to say what they want you to say to get the money, to get them to write the check. Right. It, wow. it would have been easy for me to say, you know, oh, look, this is how they're doing it here. And isn't this a shame that, you know, this is how it works when we go to these countries. But I came to understand we're doing the same thing because Mm -hmm. we have to learn how to play the game. And what if it wasn't about playing a game? What if Mm -hmm. funding could be built on relationships? And Nikki, not like the relationships you're talking about, because I've seen that too, is we, that you will hear in funding relation or funding conversations, it's about relationship. But again, Mm -hmm. it's happening at these dinners or these galas or these award ceremonies. And some of us are kept out of that. A lot of us are kept out of that. So, you know, people end up doing whatever they have to do to survive. And so what if it didn't have to be about the hustle in that way? So what do you think, like, what do you think is the impact of race and culture on this grand disconnect? I want to respond to that just for a minute. I think we've been talking about that in different ways. But yeah. there are issues of visibility and trust. Mm-hmm. So another painful experience. There used to be something during the Bush administration in Los Angeles called the Regime Change Cafe. And (laughs) these were very wealthy people, many of them on the boards of multiple foundations, many of them major donors, who would have, but they're all progressive. And so they would have these cafes that you could come to. Very few nonprofits were allowed, you know, and if you came in, you were expected not to speak, Mm. except for the official person that was speaking. Mm-hmm. So I went to one of them and there was a guy who was said that he was an evangelical from the South and he was, he looked like he was right out of central casting for the image that a progressive person would have of the evangelical from the South. Oh right? my gosh. <laughs> and, and he proceeded to give a little speech about the wonderful work he was doing, which according to him was organizing people of all races and bring and all evangelicals and bringing them all immediately to support reproductive rights. And I'm okay. looking <laughs> I don't all like know this guy. I've never even heard of this guy. Okay. And at the time I was doing national work in the evangelical context with lots of leaders of color and uh-huh. some friendly white leaders that we were working with as well. And I knew the unfriendly ones as well. And I was like, I've never heard of this guy. Mm. And at the end of this conversation, people were throwing money at Do you want a hundred thousand? Do you want a hundred fifty? And I was, I, in the work that I was doing, we were just invisible. They Mm. didn't have a concept in their mind of evangelicals as brown and black. They, uh, we just weren't visible to them. Mm. (laughs) And I've had this odd experience several times of having conversations that start out with me saying, you know what, the work we're doing, it's invisible. And the person on the other end, who's a person of goodwill, says, tell me about it. And I tell them about it. And they get really excited. And the next time I meet them, they've forgotten it all. Oh, yes. <laughs> They're saying the same thing about, you know, we have wow. to find a way to move these white evangelical male leaders because that's the evangelical church and we have to build bridges. And it's no, actually the statistics are <laughs> not that. And there's this amazing work going on by faith leaders of color who are evangelical. And it's, we have the same conversation. The yeah, same conversation. again. Again. <laughs> <laughs> so next time I say that, it's gone away again. So there's this these stereotypes that are very deeply ingrained, deeply formed that tend to 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 um, result in our visibility. So Alexia, you mentioned the statistics. What are the statistics you're thinking of there? I'm thinking just for example, this one blew me out, which is that um 80% of white Republicans are identified as evangelicals. We we all know that, right? And mm-hmm. go to church. And I think 65% of them go to church, right? Uh, but what most people don't know is that 75% of 
of Black Democrats identify as active Christians going to church weekly. Yes, and that's right. The 8% of Hispanics identify, of Hispanic Democrats identify as active Christians going to church. Yes, so, yes. So what does that tell you, right? It tells mm-hmm. you that the partisan divide is a racial divide in the church. Yeah. It's a and, not only and that, but, but their Christianity, the Christianity that you'll find in those Black churches is evangelical. Absolutely. I mean, Yes, by every by every measurement, every of single evangelical Christianity, it's evangelical. They have altar calls every single Sunday, and it's every Sunday community. Not only do we have a lot, you know, growing percentage about twenty percent now um, identify evangelical, but in the Catholic context, we're something like eighty percent charismatic, right? So wow. it's evangelical. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Thank you so much for that, Alexi. That's so helpful. How about you, Nikki? Yeah, I think one of the things that Alexia touched on in her first story about the ways that communities of color work cooperatively. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's one of the places where I sort of see some of these barriers in terms of culture and race show up. I think folks are very, or funders are very comfortable with us being clients or being recipients, but don't have as much imagination for us also being leaders and program leaders and designers. And, and so I think that leads to some of this invisibility But also I think the ways I've appreciated the ways that different funders have been trying to be much more transparent or much more accessible, but the fundamental frame or the doorway that you go through in this really does promote an individualistic self-promotion type of a thing. And I just, as I look out at communities of color and how we show up um, as women leaders, how we show up, I think the most innovative work comes with collaboration with cooperation Mm -hmm. and that there is this really weird way that you feel like you have to, if, you know, if you're right-hand dominant, you have to write with your left hand in order to do these proposals in order to say these things in a way that, that, that people recognize the impact or the value and where I wish some of these systems captured or reflected better how we show up in the world, because there's some really amazing innovation. There's some Mm -hmm. really amazing community change and progress that is happening, but it just is not caught when you try to measure it in the way or when you try to look for the proposals in the way that they currently are. Mm. Mickey, your work is deeply collaborative, actually. I'm thinking, you know, all of the work that you do usually collaborates between at least two groups. And so how do you experience that? And then also if there are other disconnects that you see? For me, a commitment of mine is always trying to bring people along with me, right? Like <clears throat> if I get the money, then I'm trying to kind of, you know, redistribute it out. Now, unfortunately, what happens sometimes is I have seen, you know, some grants or some funders are, are like, absolutely not. You're not allowed to redistribute the money, mm. which is really then difficult to work with, right? And mm-hmm. so you have then to make a choice around, do I try and you know, redistribute this in a way that I can kind of get away with? Or do Mm -hmm. I, you know, like, how do I navigate this Mm -hmm. so that we're, I'm able to live by my deeper principle that it's not just about me getting funded, right? That it's about Mm -hmm. being able to share and me being able to, you know, put some money in the pockets of people who can do the work and just be, you know, I think it's better when I'm collaborating with other folks that I know other people that are talented, that have great ideas and that can get the work done. And to kind of get around what I think often happens is because their networks are shallow, because these funder networks are often shallow and not within each other, not to each other per se, but right, like who they know is doing Mm -hmm. the work and that it often gets like, there are two or three like golden children that get put up, right? There's this funny thing that happens where once some foundations start giving you money, Every other foundation is like, oh, um, we have um, $10,000 right. that we would like to give you. And um, we just need you to write yeah. a proposal for it. It's like, when I have people asking me, how do you get money? How did you end up with this foundation? I'm like, oh, they called us. But they started calling us after everybody else was giving us money. And so yeah. they actually need stronger, more, I don't know, better woven networks of all these people. And so hopefully by bringing in other folks, they're starting to get that. But if the mindset isn't changed, right, if they're not kind of seeing then what we're doing, then they don't know these other people that are participating in our networks. These are our stories. 
You're listening to the Freedom Road Podcast, where we bring you the stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. One area that I find a huge disconnect in is the space between the cultural assumption within the historically white worldview of philanthropy about the role of faith and the intersections of faith and justice within the lived experience of the majority of leaders of color, right? So when you look back at most of the movements that changed the world, almost all of them trace back to leaders of color, people of color, and their faith. Historically, our power base has been our spirituality. Yet we often have to code switch, just like Mickey, like you were talking mm. about in that last mm-hmm. segment, right? When we interface with white-led funding institutions, and Nikki, you actually said that too. Now, on the flip side, white funders have largely erased faith and spirituality from the equation altogether, often mm-hmm. in response to white fundamentalism, right? So they see the impacts of white fundamentalism trying to take over the world. And they're like, we're not for that. So we're going to erase faith altogether. We don't want anything to do with this. The answer then is less faith, not deeper faith, right? But for people of color who have been on the vanguard of the abolitionist movement, the civil rights movement, um, the LGBTQ movement, even that actually, and it's not usually recognized, people like Bayard Rustin and others, it's actually a deep faith base that has sustained those who have been on the spear tip of the oppression. So they require spirit scrubbed proposals. That's right. Plans and strategies and don't recognize the needs to cultivate strong faith to meet the challenges present within our communities. Um, Now I want to ask you guys, what is the impact of that dynamic when you seek funding? There's a gap between what people know intellectually and how deep that goes in them. Um, so I want to say that I've seen a real sea change in the foundation community over the last 20 years of naming some of these things, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Or maybe not bringing them up, but certainly acknowledging them. Mm-hmm. But whether that actually changes the way that people operate, I think is much harder. Mm-hmm. So I want to that there's that a lot of this is not new, obviously. But it's really coming to a deeper relationship with us that then creates a deeper understanding. The truth Mm -hmm. is that understanding comes out of relationship. That's what we know culturally. And that's what we increasingly know scientifically. Mm -hmm. So it's building the kind of relationship that allows for going deeper, being held accountable. Because that's how people sometimes change in action. And so the person on the other end said, you said you understood this, but then this behavior was different. But if there's no relationship where you can say that, it it doesn't happen. And I want to bring up one thing that has to do with it. I talked about the time it takes to do the deep leadership development work. But let me add in another piece, which is for us, community development and community organizing and advocacy are not separate animals. Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. when communities are really hurting it's hard for them to have the energy that it takes to mm-hmm. keep a fight going until you win. Mm-hmm. It has a very oh, so high nice. cost. And so you have to take care of people and you have to take care of people emotionally. You have to take care of people spiritually. You have to help people sustain and survive so that they can win. Mm-hmm. And and there's just multiple levels. I think of Mickey's work. I think of, you know, there's multiple levels of intersection. And we often get funded, those of us who do effective social change work, we get funded in spite of our faith, not because of it. And the components Mm -hmm. of the work that are connected to our faith, whether it's that practical community development, whether it's healing, whether it's very directly spiritual, we don't get funded for that. Mm -hmm. So, but that is essential in the communities that we operate in. That is, that's awesome. How about you, Mickey? Yeah. I mean, I think What I'm seeing is that funders are interested in the idea of spiritual. They get nervous when it's religious, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm. And so that's an interesting dynamic that I think a lot of us are trying to weave through right now. And that has to do with, What do you mean by that? Can you just kind of go into that? What do you mean by that? 
Yeah, because there's a lot of excitement around the idea of movement chaplaincy or around, you know, spiritual sustainability in our movements, mm-hmm. in social change work. And I think that's because that can feel nebulous enough to feel like it's going to be okay. Like I chaplains see. are pretty non-threatening, a lot yeah. of people. Um, mm-hmm. And because they're not, these are spiritual workers outside of institutions for the most mm-hmm. part. I mean, um, you don't have to go to a church. To, mm-hmm. to meet a chaplain, right? They're coming to you. So mm-hmm. I think this idea of someone that will help you with your own spiritual development or enlightenment feels a lot safer maybe to fund. Mm-hmm. And it plays well with kind of a more open spirituality. But I think what maybe people are missing is that faith leaders of color, spiritual leaders of color, like you mentioned, Lisa, we've always been at the forefront of movements. And I think part of that is because we tend to play well with others. Like Mm. we tend to do multi-faith work. And so it's not like we maybe already have those networks. And I'm not saying everybody, right? There are plenty of, you know, faith leaders of color who only know other people in their, you know, religious tradition, right? Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. many of us, especially if we've been doing work in our cities or even in rural areas where like everybody does kind of have to work together. We've been doing that kind of cross religious work for a long time. And especially I would say younger folks who have maybe had their own deconstruction, like many of us are very open spiritually. So I don't think there needs to be the fear of funding something that then is going to turn into this, you know, they're funding something that they don't politically agree with. You know, so, Mm. but that all comes, again, it kind of comes back to the relationship, right? If you don't know us, the only statistics you're going off of or information you're going off of, it's based on white evangelicals, then you don't know what we're up to. You don't know what our networks are and you don't Mm -hmm. understand that we are already well-versed in multi-faith work. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Nikki? Yeah, Lisa, I think, you know, one of the things that I think is very interesting is that I Mm -hmm. think in funding spaces, people have recognized individual components that are sort of part of the package of what spirituality brings as a whole. Mm. And I'd say these are like the little pebbles uh, that are part of a river. And to understand these little pieces is is actually to really only grasp a part of it. So things like resiliency the power of a common narrative, the the common stories that a group tells, the markers, uh, the symbols uh, that remind us who we are about and how we orient ourselves in the world. You know, all of these kinds of things, even the power of retreats or silence or healing, that sort of a thing. I think faith communities have something powerful to bring when we talk about stuff like racial healing Mm. or understanding uh, the power of uh, mending history or healing of land. These are sort of things that I don't feel break down super well. Mm-hmm. When you look at the umbrella or the wholeness of what a faith-fueled engagement looks like, it has all these pieces. I think folks can understand the little bits. Oh, it's important to build resiliency in a community. Oh, it's important to have story, you know. But I think that's what we really, that's what I think spirituality or faith has understood the mm-hmm. power of symbol, of being a part of, of a larger story than your own, of understanding mm-hmm. your story in the context of a history of stories, mm-hmm. your relationship in the context of a, a whole matrix of relationships, mm-hmm. these sort of things. There's a certain element, I think, of, of mystery that I think people get a little scared of when it hasn't been broken down into these understandable components. But I wish, you know, and I dream that funders or philanthropists would uh, maybe reverse that. Instead of looking at the little pieces, we look at, oh, this is one of those vehicles that holds all of those fueling, resilience, story, vision casting, and hope driving practices mm. in one. Yeah. Yeah. So let me powerful. just, <laughs> let me just jump in just with a one liner on this one. Yeah. Is that I think that the biggest frustration that I have mm. is funders not understanding this integrative work yes, that the yes. faith community does and how important it is. Mm-hmm. So, and I do, I mean, I have been on funding boards, so mm-hmm. I do understand the, the central importance of evaluation. It's a holy task. And I do know that people are trying to confront how to do evaluation in new ways. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure that we have, I really want to just call out that we need to find ways to evaluate integrative work. 
That's so good. You know, I wonder if any of you would like to share or could share a story that illustrates the point that you just made, any of the points that you just made. Like, I feel like we need to touch this. We need to understand how it works in the context of our communities. What does integrative work look like on the ground? Like, what would a funder be funding? I've been immersed in the base Christian community movement for the last year. I've been writing a book on it, mm. which was a movement in primarily in Latin America and in the Philippines. Although we had base Christian communities here in Los Angeles from people that came up from the wars in Central America. And, you know, it's a movement as that's actually still going on. It's just less known in this generation. Okay. But it's still going on, the grandchildren of the original people. But it's widely recognized as providing the spine of the movements for justice in Latin America and the Philippines. Mm-hmm. That I was there when we won against the, the pro-democracy movement, against the Marcos dictatorship won. And everyone acknowledged, both the scholars and the practitioners, that the base Christian community movement was at the core of that. Wow. That it sustained people because we were dying. So because what did it look like? What did it look like? So people met weekly uh-huh. um, in small communities mm-hmm. and they analyzed their reality in the light of the, the liberating word of God. And they took care of each other and they shared participatory leadership. So people were trained in their leadership capacities. And then all of them were involved in the movement. <laughs> and they were also ready not only to sacrifice their lives, which they were ready to do, but they were ready after a sacrifice to be able to go on with hope, to love again, to believe again, to engage again after loss is a characteristic of Christian faith and all kinds of faith, actually. But wow. they people did that. They encouraged each other in community and they took care of each other in community. And it was in, the, in Vatican II, which talked about the, which gave birth to the base Christian community movement. They called the communities the soul and yeast of the larger society. And that is what they were, the soul and yeast of the larger society. So I I lift that up just because it's so tangible and so measurable. (laughs) See, that that for me, it reminds me of the kind of work that was done in the civil rights movement. When they were recruiting different people, they didn't recruit them just off the street, although I'm sure some people did. But the majority of them recruited right out of the church. Like they were in their local churches. Fannie Lou Hamer was recruited out of her church. That's right. right? Greenwood, Mississippi. There was a there was a practice of coming together around in a church and not just singing songs, but singing songs that were related to texts out of the actual scripture that informed how they were going to do what they did. And when they left, I'm always, I always think about the Birmingham Children's March. When the Birmingham Children's March happened, they left a church. They, they mm. marched from a church singing because that, that gave them the spiritual power to sing their way into jail. Like they couldn't have gone to jail That's if right. they had not started singing. And when they yeah. got into the jail, they were singing through the bars, out of the jail. They were able to sustain themselves in the jail because of their spiritual life. So I think I'm just, that's one of the things that I wish that, that funders really could grasp. And I'm also um, thinking, I'm back to something you said, Mickey, about how spirituality is a lot easier to kind of swallow than religion. But when you think about, I think about what Miroslav Volf said. Miroslav Volf is the author of, of several amazing books. He's a theologian. He wrote a book called Public Faith. And in this book, Public Faith, he talks about the need for, or the lie that too much faith is the problem of the world. And so we need to actually, we need to water it down. We need to tamp it down. And, you know, so that the real stuff can actually take hold and take root, which is, you know, civil society measures, mitigating measures. But what he says is actually, that's not true. What's, what is true is that the problem is we don't have too much faith, we have too thin faith. Mm-hmm. The faith that's out there is not deep enough. So it can be swayed and manipulated mm. with the wind. Mm. And so it doesn't have roots and doesn't have direction that comes from anything before. Right. So I think, Alexia, what you were referring to, you point back to the roots. You, t- you know, you point back to the sacred text, you point back to the 
example of the saints that came before, the understanding of Vatican II, and all of these different pieces that give accountability within faith structures. Yeah. And Lisa, actually, I think that's the fear of people on the left or progressives, right? Is the fear that faith is so thin that it's just people can just be moved any kind of way, right? So it's let's just keep our hands off of it. We don't Mm. want it to become a tool of manipulation or whatever. Like we've seen what has kind of happened on the far right, right? right? And the rise of the religious right. And so there's a lot of fear there. And so we've kind of just, Mm -hmm. you know, taken our hands off. And Mm -hmm. the time has come that we can't do that anymore. We, there's no, you know, like, oh, we don't want to play with anybody who is talking about faith or talking about spirituality or No, we have to engage and we have to understand that like building a multicultural society or society that says that everyone is important actually includes people who have deep beliefs, Mm -hmm. deep faith, and that are all in all other kinds of places along the way as well. Right. But to ask Mm -hmm. people to somehow leave that behind to create an inclusive, progressive society is not the only option. Like, Mm -hmm. you don't have to get rid of the spirituality, even the religiosity, in order to have a world where everyone is loved and and accepted. In fact, there are people who come from that position who are helping to co-create that world. And I think we just have to, like, we have to be willing to speak up for that and say it. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to actually add something even a little outrageous. Um, Okay. (laughs) I have a millennial daughter, right? So I, you know... I get to hear a lot about what's <laughs> happening in their generation. And I'm so struck by how little grace there is. Mm-hmm. By grace, you were talking about, we too can work together multiculturally. It's like, no, it actually goes deeper than that. Yes. <laughs> like this belief in grace, this understanding of grace actually enables us to work together across the lines because, because we can forgive each other and ourselves. Wow. We can admit, honestly, we can confess where we have blown it. And there's life after blowing it. Mm-hmm. There's healing and forgiveness after blowing it. And some of it, we don't have to pretend perfection. And we don't have to ruthlessly take apart the people that disagree with us. We have ancient traditions in every great religion. We have ancient traditions of reconciliation and bridge building. Mm. And do we need that in our movements nowadays? Yes. We're eating each other For alive. sure. That's right. You know, yeah. so, That's true. So if we're going to, it's not even just like, yeah, we too can be part of this. It's like, no, we actually have resources and gifts and exercises and strategies and tactics that create renewed relationship in spite of people's weaknesses. That's right. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast. This is Freedom Road Podcast. Okay, so what are some practical ways funders can begin to make the shifts right now? Nikki has a lot to say about this one. Go for it. (laughs) I think like as folks think about funding leadership development, recognizing that the context in which developing leaders of color, they have a different challenge ahead of them and they need different resources. They need relationships and emotional support and mental health support. They need finances, but also education and professional development opportunities. And so to think about ways, uh, it goes back to kind of what Alexia said about um, an integrative work, a holistic work, that it's not just about investing in the leader, but it's about investing in the leader and developing the ecosystem around that leader so Mm. that they have the ability to thrive in some of the, I'm going to call it racially toxic spaces in which they are asked to lead. You Mm. know, what does a young or a mid-level leader need relationally, grocerally, you know, just in a health sense, you know, I just think that there is a a way that um, people have underestimated and put a lot of resources on individuals and have asked them to figure it out themselves. And then they just wonder, why is it that, you know, we're burning out on folks? I think I'll, I'll say that. And then one other thing I'll just toss out is I do think funders would do well 
to have a learning community that they can be a part of so Mm. that they might be able to have lenses and eyes to see some of these powerful and invisible things that are happening, particularly in these faith communities of color. That's really great. How about you, Mickey? Yeah, kind of off of what you're saying, Mickey, is, you know, the idea of participatory budgeting is gaining Mm -hmm. some traction in different cities, right, where the people actually are involved in setting the city budget and determining where things go. What if there was a kind of participatory funding when it came to funding all kinds of things, but in this particular thing, right, because we are so relational and communal, Mm -hmm. if there was a participatory funding mechanism or pathway so that funders could, you know, hear from us about how we actually do this funding, right? Mm -hmm. And we could be part of the process, right? And have some sort of power in that process, right? Mm -hmm. And I also, I mean, the love language of anyone who is seeking funding is operational grants, right? Like, just Ah, give me some some money so that we can pay for health insurance. Unpack what that means. Right, right. I mean, we need those funds to just be able to survive, right? If no all we're doing, I, I have like been caught up in that cycle of like, you you apply for a grant, so you got to do the thing. And then before you're even done doing the thing, you have to be seeking more money. So you have to come up with a new project that get more money for, and you're paying for mm-hmm. one thing with this. So you can, you know, and it's yep. just need grants that, that actually fund both experimentation and what it takes to just live, to be mm-hmm. able to, to do the work. Can I add something to that very quickly before you move on, Nikki? Because I think that part of the part of what is necessary in those operational grants is to ask the question of what are the the boundaries that we want to to place on, or maybe the expectations is a better way to put it. The expectations we want to place on how that operational money will be used justly. In other words, to build a just organization. That's right. So in other words. This operational grant is not going to be used just to pay, just to pay people part-time workers so yeah. that you can get away without doing insurance or, you know, or um, only paying people at 60% of their value of their That's actual right. work or even 80% of the value of their work that you will pay them at market value. Like that's, that's the right. kind of granting that we really need because the majority of people of color in America are employed by one of two entities, either government and the second largest employer of people of color in America is nonprofits. Yeah. So, and nonprofits almost as a rule pay below market value for what people's work is worth. So what would it look like for operational grants to require that people get paid what their market value of their work is worth? One last thing on that is that I also think we need funding that is generative. And Mm. by that, I mean, there needs to be as part of the community of funding and these relationship between funders and those doing the work, there needs to be some opportunity to learn. So Mm. I I can't remember who it was that I saw, but it was specifically funding work for Black women and girls. And I think it was around mental health. And part of their process was you could apply with a video you could actually ask for help in the application process. Mm, mm, um, wow. They had mentors that were part of the process. And so we actually need, I mean, uh, there are a, a lot of us start nonprofits, right? And I don't know the numbers on how many, you know, folks of color are starting them, but I feel like that's a thing we do. And mm-hmm. so but we don't <laughs> always have the knowledge of how to write a grant, how to write the, you know, your reports after you got the grant. What kinds of things funders are looking for? What, you know, and again, not to play the game, but if it was done in a relational way Mm -hmm. and in ways that are like, yes, it would be helpful for me because of whatever my circumstances are to write, to make a video. I want to show you what I do. Or I I could get somebody to help me write the reports, but I I need to even know what goes in them. That Mm. could be part of the process of increasing this network, but it's a choice to do that. That's good. When I was on the Liberty Hill Community Funding Board, I I had two repeated experiences that I want to share. Okay. And one of them is that I would go out to see a group's work. And the group, the work would be amazing, community changing, life changing work. But the 
proposal wasn't very good. And I would say, can I help them? And Liberty Hill would say, no, you can't <sighs> help them because that makes it not objective. You can't help them. So I'm going to out myself. This was years ago. I would not help. <laughs> <laughs> this is ridiculous. Do we want yeah. to fund this quality of work? Absolutely. That's right. Okay. But the other thing that I saw, and I just need to say this, we all know if, we're, you, if we've done this research, and many of us have, that there's fewer assets in communities of color. But I also ran into as organizations run by white people who were using their savings to get started. That's right. Or they were using their connections with their friends mm-hmm. who had money, mm-hmm. who had savings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yes. the black and brown folks we were working with often didn't have savings. That's right. And so can we recognize that in this process that Mickey's talking about, that the asset difference makes a big difference in what it takes for us to start something? That's right. Mm-hmm. Successfully. Amen. Wow. Okay. So what is it that you see when you imagine a transformed and highly effective funding process for leaders of color 20 years from now? I mean, one of the things that I see is real and true sea change, not just incremental change. That Mm -hmm. if over 20 years, there was real creativity and thinking about how to give some space for the folks from the communities of color who are dreaming about or uh, working something really new and really amazing, something that we can't in the intermediate figure out how to measure to determine if it's going to work, but that there is a way that our problems are not incrementally changed. And we just, you know, we look like a different shade of what we have today, Mm -hmm. but that there are real and true innovations Uh, being led by communities of color, that there are sort of these prophets or these prophets um, from these communities, and they are operating in ways that stir our imagination. We never thought things could be organized that way. We never thought that was the impact that we hoped for. And we never dreamed about the depth of the sustainability of the changes in the work uh, that we see. Those are the kinds of things that I hope would be true. And Mm. I think reimagining funding models that would imagine how do we incentivize cooperative innovation? How do we incentivize organizations that can bring five other organizations to the table, not just fund themselves? How can Mm -hmm. we really invest in a couple of leaders that are a little scary? We can't understand them, but we have a sense that they know where to take us. Those are the sort of things that I think if those changes could be true, I think I would hope we would be talking about different sets of problems Mm. rather than decades old problems and trying Mm. to have new solutions. Amen. Mickey. Yeah. I mean, I hang out in a lot of different spaces and I would say from, I still have a little bit of connection into, you know, fairly conservative spaces all the way to very radical spaces. And what I can tell you is that there are some folks who are dipping in to some radical places, even when it comes to funding, right? Who are saying, take this money and do whatever you want with it. We don't really care. Just, you know, to give us a report at the end and tell us what you did, right? Wow. Or are funding things that other people wouldn't touch, right? Who are really investing in resilience and healing and care and spiritual development. And mm. so I do think that is going to increase. And I think right now is the time where, like, it's get on board, you know, like, If you want to be at the forefront of innovation, which I don't, you know, I don't know if that's at the heart of a lot of, you know, funding organizations, they may not want to be on the innovative end that may feel too scary, Mm -hmm. but that is also where the real change happens, right? Is by Mm -hmm. having some risk and doing some things that feel scary, that feel innovative. And two even goes back to that, like, how do we have more grace in our movements? It's like, let's have some grace to try some things that might not work or that might feel like, yeah, we spent that money to figure out that this thing isn't a great idea, right? <laughs> right. That's... Now, So now we know. <laughs> All right. But like, that's the risk that we pay. And I always have this question, right, on like kind of progressive movements is like, I know we have money on this side, but it seems like we're, it's not as free flowing. And I'm like, and it feels like there's so much money on the right. And I'm just like, how, like, how do we get it flowing? Because 
like, that's what we need is we need to turn the spigot on all the way and get it out. Right. And so that I see, like, I see in 20 years, more people, I mean, hopefully way before 20 years, as more people are just willing to be radical about it and just like sprinkle it on, get it out there, you know, open the hose. And then also kind of along what you were saying, right, is that we have got to find, I think there will be those organizations and maybe just, and I don't know which side it's going to come from, right? Maybe it's more of us saying, no, actually, you're not going to fund one of us. You're going to fund, like, this is me and my crew, and this is how we roll. We would like to all be a part of this. We're not competing against each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And Lisa, you know, we've had these conversations with folks when we, you know, had you know the one mm-hmm. thing that was being presented and it was like actually why don't we all come to them together and say yeah this is the crew that is applying for this money yeah and you can hire all of us or none of us like mm-hmm. that's the kind mm-hmm. of thing which again also risky right mm-hmm. for those of us on the receiving side to say we want to do something new but it doesn't have to be against each other it doesn't have to be us or them it can really be let us take your hand and lead you into a new way of mm-hmm. thinking about the this exchange of money, of thinking about funding, of thinking about how we actually get work done and make social change. And so I think that's hopefully where we're going if we can try and go there together. And mm-hmm. can I just add another word into this conversation that quite honestly, I can foresee 20 years from now will be like the word milk is in our lexicon today, cryptocurrency. Mm. Hello, somebody. Okay, so I am just now waking up. I know I'm late to the party, but I'm just now waking up to the reality that this is a thing and it's incredibly powerful and there are movements around it and there are black and brown people who are actually deeply invested in it right now in order to build the base funding that can fund the transformation of our communities And they are not going to have many of the same problems as traditional funding sources. But I also want to say this is something that traditional um, funding sources can look to begin to to innovate, to think about how they can use cryptocurrencies, particularly green cryptocurrencies, in ways that, that foster and incentivize innovation among people of color, leaders of color especially leaders of color of faith. Like, well, how could we leverage those, that space for, for this greater good? Nikki? Can I tell that something too, as we're just yeah. like dreaming about the future? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I don't want people to necessarily hear as we're talking is that we're the, the current ways, like, you know, when we're talking about like operational funds and just a tremendous amount of freedom, the reason that we're talking about that is because the current metrics that are requested are not great containers for mm. the excellent impact that is that's happening. Right. You know, like that's what oh, you that's heard good. Alexia saying. She said there's a tremendous amount of amazing things that were happening, but she was asking to serve as a translator, right? She recognized this is amazing impact. And it may or may not, like you have to use these different kinds of words for that. And I think that's one of the things that for me, when you're working with com- leaders of color, communities of color, their accountability comes in a different format. So Mm -hmm. some money and metric reports as an accountability or as the structure to organize that relationship. But I think communities of color organize themselves differently. And when you have a highly relational community, your accountability comes in a different kind of a way. I do what I'm supposed to do because I'm trying to do right by you. Is that my dropping it is going to drop it for Mm -hmm. all. You know, like, so Mm -hmm. there's just a different way of organizing. So we're not asking for a blank check to do whatever. It's just recognizing that there's a different contract. There's a different covenant uh, that communities mm-hmm. have with their community as well as, you know, and so I, th- I think that's where I think communities of color and faith communities have something to add to the conversation that makes it less transactional mm-hmm. and a lot more deeply rooted mm-hmm. with an automatic community feedback element. You know, mm-hmm. I know you all know how many programs that can give you the right numbers and go, we, we saw a thousand people go through that. Like nothing is different, right? Like yeah. good job. Yes. A thousand people yes. went through that course. Like, wow. Great. But it did, you know, like is a swing and a mess, you know? So yeah. I think I wanted to pop, put that out there is I hope we reimagine some of the ways that we 
are talking about, I would say it's the stories of impact or the ways that the story has changed, the way that our communities are talking about themselves in ways that are different. Like how do you capture those sort of things versus Mm -hmm. how many people got touched by this particular program? I mean, I think about what you're saying. I think about it's the difference in, I think the key word for me is accountability. What is it that we are accountable to? In a traditional structure, we're accountable to particular measures, and those measures are usually numbers and dollars, right? So, you know, so what would it look like instead to to count the numbers of aunties that are, you know, or the numbers of, of elders that remain with the program that and how many people they have actually shepherded through the program over the course of five years, as opposed to the numbers of, I don't know, of individual visits to a program, you know? Well, take it even a step further, right? It's the number Mm -hmm. of aunties, but it's the power of the story that the main aunties tell. How do you Mm -hmm. measure the power and the sustaining power of the story of a new story, maybe, that an auntie tells? You know, that has lasting impact, right? That's resiliency, hope, you know, like, uh, so that's what I was like. I That's love good. the data-driven thing, mm-hmm. but there are things. What's the power of a story that sticks to you and it, mm-hmm. you, and it tells you mm-hmm. how to go, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, That's and great. I'm thinking of the story of the base communities as Alexia was talking yes, about, and yes. I'm now drawing a connection even to this cryptocurrency, right? Is right. Base, the people that formed base communities are people who just decided to believe a particular story about yes. how they would survive, that they would survive together. That is the path. Cryptocurrency yeah. is just people getting together and saying, this is a, a meaningful thing, right? Like, this is worth this, right? Yeah. I mean, that's how all money works, right? And that yeah. is particularly how cryptocurrency works. We're just seeing it develop in real time. Wow. Money's been around so long that we all take for granted that we all believe in it. Yeah. yeah. But cryptocurrency only has value because everybody believes in it, right? And we've begun to tell a story about it, that it will be what we use in the future, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so I think we, and, you know, if you get around enough cryptocurrency people, yeah, they can be, you know, pretty fervent in their belief, right? And yes. they're, they're, yeah, those forums online can feel a little treacherous and dangerous, Whoa. but they really believe in their story, right? And so mm-hmm. it's like, what would it, what, what would it look like if we were a little more forceful or maybe a lot more forceful about the story that we believe in? Mm-hmm. And with base communities, what I understand is, I mean, I learned about base communities in seminary, which really was the basis of the house church, church movement in the mm-hmm. United States, right? Mm-hmm. Even some of the emergent church movement. And so it's like the story of that has continued and mm-hmm. has then ended up birthing other movements, right? Mm-hmm. And there's been something about keeping that story alive. And so what mm-hmm. do we, you know, where do we need to be more bold? As those faith leaders of color, where do we need to, you know, as faith leaders in the global South, right? Where do we need to just be, you know, puff up our chest a little bit more and say, actually, we have a story to tell. Yeah. Right. Like there, this is the story of what's happening in in our community. This is the story of what's happening, what has happened through my lineage. Mm. And you need to know about it and understand it. Mm. And it is worth, you know, the investment of other people, whatever that investment looks like. It's worth my investment of my time. Mm-hmm. which should also be rewarded, which should mm-hmm. also be funded, right? So there's something about that, learning to tell our story, learning to, you know, pull resources, yes. you know? Because think- maybe that would blow up and change the whole dynamic too, right? It's not just about me asking you to give me more money, but it's about how do we then rearrange this abundance that is already in the world? And if that's going with cryptocurrency, because it's something we're all kind of making up together, Maybe we could eliminate needing these other funding sources altogether. Who knows? Hello, somebody. Hello. <laughs> you heard it here. First, second, or third. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us today. I, I want to ask this one last question as we close. And, you know, you can take your time with this or you can share quickly. Doesn't, you know, time is, of the ess- is not of the essence here. Why does this matter right now? Why now? I think this matters now because the moment that we are in is showing a fragility and a brittleness 
to some of the things that we relied on to hold us together. Wow. And I think that there is an extraordinary movement for, there's a kind of critical mass, Mm. both in the leader of color communities and these communities of color. I, I feel like there's different communities at different stages of maturation. But there's really, I think, a critical mass. I think the the Black community has been mature for a long time. We're seeing Mm -hmm. kind of new things emerging. And that there is a way that our society um, still has enough holding it together by its threads, that an investment here within these communities of color, these communities of faith, Mm -hmm. that may be able to patch a new to patch a new um, strength into the fabric that is undergirding our society. I think we are at a moment where we are being stretched and pulled, but not torn. Mm. And, and that's where I feel like this is a really strategic place now in these next five, 10 years. I don't know how much of these uh, different threads we can rely on to be holding mm. some of the structure, to, have a, to give us something to be working with. Mm-hmm. But that's a little bit of what I see from my perspective. Wow. Thank you, Nikki. How about you, Mickey? (laughs) Talk about this narrative gap that we have Mm -hmm. in the United States. And I think all over the world, I mean, we're seeing this, even though like, you know, the French president Macron won again, it was by a smaller margin and the right has gained in France. We're Mm -hmm. seeing this all over the place, right? Mm -hmm. Talking to friends from Uganda recently, and they were like, you know, we just were thinking Trump can't be that bad. And, you know, they didn't understand what they were hearing from some of us in the U.S., right? Because the news they get, the information they get, they're like, kind of like every other president you've had so far, you know? So the story that was getting to them wasn't, they weren't getting the story of kind of how that presidency was impacting many of us. Right. And so, yes, there's a narrative gap, but I almost, it's like there's this narrative competition right now, like a narrative race, right? Very Mm. much. There are, narratives. Yeah, yeah. Com- there are these competing narratives and mm-hmm. we need to be decisive and clear about the narratives that we are putting out there, that we are telling. Mm-hmm. Because any of us that are involved in social change, we know it's not about facts and figures. People yeah. are moved mm-hmm. by story. People are moved mm-hmm. by narrative. And sometimes narrative and helping shape the narrative are not as easily quantifiable, right? That is harder to like report on how you change the narrative, Mm -hmm. right? That Mm -hmm. is generational change. And so that's, I think, what, why this is so important is we have to start funding. We have to start putting resources and getting more talent built up and supported that is doing work around that narrative. Because right Mm -hmm. now the narratives that we craft and that kind of win that narrative competition are what is going to become the foundation for the next 10, 20, 30 and years and beyond. That's right. You are so like singing my song. (laughs) (laughs) I know. This is the exact reason I wrote Fortune, right? This is the exact reason why we do what we do with all the pilgrimages and, and the trainings and all of it is because you're right. There is a competition for narrative happening right now, but it's not new, right? This is this is really centuries old competition that it is the competition between make America great again, right? That one time we were supposedly great. Usually they point to the, the time before the new deal. Hello, really? Back <laughs> when there were race riots and massacres happening all over the country and, and labor issues, terrible conditions. Of, yes. Yeah. Labor issues and all the rest. Yeah. And and children dying at 11 Mm -hmm. years old from working in factories in New York (laughs) City. Yeah. Yeah. That time, because it was clear who was boss, right? That's what they would actually, really, it's what they're saying. Um, Or is it that story that that tells the story of us always reaching for the more perfect union, right? We have to become a more perfect union. And the thing that really strikes me about why now, like for me, as I'm listening, I was listening to you guys. And the thing that clicked for me was, Realizing that right now, mm-hmm. we are globally, we are in the middle of a decolonizing era of what's making this huge shift. And the reality is that we're facing several existential crises that literally could be like, they could affect humanity on the extinction level, climate change, pandemics, 
nuclear war. I mean, several of these things, right? So what is it then that we leaders of color offer? We have been on the receiving end of colonization for hundreds of years. And we understand the systems and the logics behind it. And we have another way. We have other ways, decolonized, uncolonized ways of doing things that we believe can actually move our nation and our world back toward flourishing and toward a generative way of life. So uh, I just want to say thank you again. Thank you so much for coming and being a part of this conversation, for having this conversation with me. These are the conversations that leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road Podcast is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and around the country. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road Podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC, a consulting, coaching, training, and designing group that creates experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for updates. We promise we won't flood your inbox. We invite you to listen again next month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road.